0: Welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in May 2023. This episode is about some of the main ideas associated with rationalism and empiricism. So, we'll be thinking about whether reason or reasoning can be a source of knowledge, whether we can have knowledge innately, and we'll be thinking about intuition and deduction. We'll also see what else we get onto, although we've bitten off quite a lot already, I think to chew. So joining me in this episode we have Sally Latham who's a philosophy teacher at Birmingham Metropolitan College. Hi Sally.
1: Hi Simon, thank you for having me back.
0: And Dan McKee who teaches at Warwick School in Birmingham and also writes a blog called Philosophy Unleashed. Hi Dan. Hi, Simon. Nice to be back too. Nice to have both of you uh, with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about a significant set of issues within epistemology about rationalism and empiricism, reason as a source of knowledge, innate knowledge, and various parts of Descartes' thinking. These topics appear on the AQA A-level philosophy specification, which we're basing our discussion around. But these topics also appear in the IB and Scottish Hires. And it's really important background for any religious studies specification, such as OCR, Edexcel, or Educas. So let's start with reason as a source of knowledge. Um, which of you wants to set the scene and talk about different forms of knowledge briefly, so we can hone in on reason as a source of knowledge? The big thing with this particular
2: topic is we've got different types of knowledge that you can, like, have in, in, in on the AQA specification you know we've been focusing mainly on propositional knowledge but the question is sort of where does knowledge come from to, to have this knowledge and what are the sources and the entire AQA specification is really looking at where it comes from does it come from perception of the world for example do we look at the world and we, we see and we learn through that um, and is all knowledge the same kind of knowledge are, are some pieces of knowledge Uh, true today but not true tomorrow is it knowledge that I hold now and not all knowledge I hold uh, tomorrow so whatever the number one grossing movie in the world right now that is knowledge that someone who works in that industry probably has and it will not be knowledge a month from now because the the name will have changed whereas there are some things like two plus two equals four that are knowledge that permanent and forever and necessarily true in all in all situations but when we talk about where does knowledge come from, you know, we, we, we might think we learn knowledge from people, we might get told knowledge, we might get taught knowledge, we might discover knowledge through perception like we, we've said. But if that's true, does that mean you always have to encounter knowledge out there in the world that you experience it somehow, that you pick it up Um through your senses or through um, someone else having picked it up and giving testimony of some knowledge that you learn and maybe verify evidence, justify, etc. Or are there some things that you can know that you just know, that you just know without having to do anything? you know do you have an intuition, for example, that you just sort of sent something to be true, you know it's true through pure intuition? Or more than that, do you have knowledge that you just are born with that it's just there, that we just come out of the womb and we know it? even if maybe we can't say we know it until we've learned to talk and can suddenly realize that that thing that we've always known, we've always known, we never learned it anywhere. So once we've thought about what knowledge is and all the different kinds of knowledge there is, we've got this question of, you know, where does it come from? What are the origins of our knowledge? And this big question that we're going to be looking at today is really the two sides of the debate are we have to learn it. We are born with nothing. We're born a blank slate and, you know, everything's there to be learned versus we're not born a blank slate. We're, we're born with something that makes sense of the world, maybe, or something that we come to be able to articulate later on when we suddenly realise we had this knowledge all along that was there that we didn't get from the world.
0: Great. Thanks, Dan. Sally, anything to add to that opening
1: comment? Uh, no, I just think um, those two sides of the, debate, of the debate are what we call generally rationalism and empiricism. So, an empiricist point of view, some people would say that it's that all knowledge comes from experience, that you know, that we are born that blank slate and there's nothing until experience has has written upon it. Um, and rationalism, that at least some of our knowledge can come through pure reason, whether that be innate intu- uh, intuition, deduction, but there's something we can know a priori without the senses. For some rationalists it's everything, for some rationalists it's some knowledge, but there's at least some. And um, strictly most empiricists will allow that there can be some a priori knowledge but it would be contained to the analytic so even Hume you know kind of your archetypal empiricist would say well you can know that a triangle has three sides a priori but honestly who cares it doesn't tell you anything about the world so it's a synthetic a priori knowledge which is the bone of contention can we know anything interesting about the world that adds to our knowledge of it through reason alone and that's where the debate lies
0: Great. Okay, good. So Jen, just some comments from me, and then uh, I'll hand it back to Sally and Dan when I'm going to ask them some questions. So yeah, so this, this is really, really important, and kind of like a, a really kind of important flowering of Western European philosophy in the early modern period where you're getting lots of these big beasts, um, you know, Descartes, Hume, Locke, Leibniz, we'll talk about all of them, kind of writing across a period of about 200 250 years or so and thinking about the i mean there's many other people as well thinking about these big debates often influenced by the rise of modern science where people are finding out more about the world and we're finding then more about how human beings learn about the world uh, and it's kind of it's really really important kind of rich uh, philosophical era so uh, we've mentioned a few um, terms there or that or the two of you did in those opening comments Um, and we have got a a key terms bonanza episode that we recorded a few months ago me and dan with a couple of others where we go into lots of detail about lots and lots of terms and and um, pairs of pairs of terms and we didn't think we'd get through it all Dan, did we but we did so that there's there's lots more detail in that episode if you want to hear it but quickly should we just think about some interesting pairs so we've mentioned a priori I think and, and there's also a posteriori Does someone would kind of a quick go at just nailing those two down for us
2: I think the, the quickest way of saying a priori uh, I always remind students you know it's got the word prior in it so it's prior to experience you know something before you've experienced it you don't need experience to have that knowledge and a posteriori it's got the word post as in sort of after so you have knowledge after experience or, or from experience so it's basically can you know something without having to experience it? And as Sally said, you know there are some things like I do not need to go and check the triangle that's over there to know it's got three sides, because triangles have three sides, and I know that without having to go and experience it. If it doesn't have three sides, it's not a triangle. But to say that there is a triangle over there, that I'd have to actually go over there and and check. I'd have to go look in the world and, and
0: have the experience, and that would be a posteriori. Great. Uh, and then Sally, uh, we've got. Or you can choose analytic, synthetic, or necessary contingent.
1: Oh, I will go analytic, synthetic. And <laughs> um, so, an analytic proposition or analytic truth is one which the truth is contained within the meaning of the words itself. Um, so, for example, if I say a bachelor is an unmarried man, if I analyse the word bachelor, unmarried man is already contained within it. I don't need to go out and experience any bachelors to know that they're unmarried. So they're, another way to describe that is they're tautological. So the predicate is what I'm um, saying about a subject. And if that predicate is contained within the subject, then it's a it's an analytic truth. Um, so again, that those can be known a priori. I don't need to go out and experience bachelors to know that they're unmarried. A synthetic proposition or synthetic truth is one in which it adds to my knowledge of the subject. So if I was to say bachelors eat pot noodles, then I then have added to my knowledge of bachelors. And I can't know that from analysing the term bachelor. I can sit and think about the word bachelor forever. I'm not going to get that knowledge. So these are adding to our knowledge of the world. They're non-tautological. And these arguably can only be found through experience. If you're an empiricist, you're definitely going to say that you're all synthetic truths um, and propositions we know through experience.
0: Great, good. So I'll I'll finish things off with necessary and contingent. Then, so often we we talk about things being true, and then we might talk about things being necessarily true or contingently true. So if something's contingently true, it means it is true, really is true, but it happens to be true. If something is necessarily true, that it's true, but it had to be true. So again, going back to triangles. Um, it's true that this triangle has three sides. It's necessarily the case. It's necessarily true that the triangle has three sides. It's not contingently true because it couldn't have been a triangle without having three sides. It must have three sides. Whereas the triangle being over there or the triangle being red or the red triangle, triangle being over there, perhaps all of those statements are true, but they're contingently true. They didn't have to be true. They didn't have to be the case. It could have been a blue triangle, triangle, not over there, but somewhere else. Okay, And those three pairs of definitions are really important, those words, uh, in what we're going to come on to. Okay, so it's good to have those distinctions on the table. And so now we need to then get into some of the details of of reason, rationalism and, and empiricism. So some think, do, I don't know if we mentioned it, but certainly we by name, but we certainly, it was buzzing around in your opening comments. And that's innatism or innate knowledge, Does someone want to have a quick go at just talking us through that?
1: Yeah, sure. So innate knowledge would be knowledge that is present from birth. So this is a a really strong argument for for rationalism. There are some things that have not been gained from experience because they're there um, at the point of birth. So they are, it might be lying dormant. You might not be consciously aware of it, but it's already there. So obviously this is a form of a priori knowledge and would show that the mind is not a blank slate it's not a tabula rasa at birth because it's it comes pre-prepared with with some sort of knowledge.
0: Great okay good so having got all those building blocks let's let's go for it then and think about rationalism and, and empiricism and and here I mean before we started recording we were talking about how difficult some students find this because there's an awful lot going on in the spec and different debates because there were different debates and and big um, debates going on in that era. It's not as if they all sat down as a committee and decided to, this is how we're going to structure our debates because they were writing at different times and responding to each other in difficult ways. So just actually, do either one of you want to just say how you set about setting the scene and teaching this material? Um, I'd like to just say something as well because we just
2: sort of said, well, this is about empiricism versus rationalism. Yeah, but there's this funny word in that we need to know. Yeah. And actually in the, in the AQA specification, it's all centred on innatism um, Mm. and the word rationalism doesn't actually come into it. It's it's something that from a student point of view, if you were uh, researching this, reading extra books, looking online and you see the stuff about rationalism and all you've got is the AQA specification, you might not realise that this is part of the same discussion, but there's also that important distinction. So I always try and sort of lay it out by saying there is this idea from empiricism that we experience the world, um, and we receive information, we, we, we gain knowledge experience, there's this idea that you might have other ways of gaining knowledge that's not from experience. That's rationalism. An aspect of that might be maybe there's some knowledge that you're born with that's innate, but there's other possible rationalist routes to gaining knowledge without experience that we'll also look at later. That you know That's under the umbrella of rationalism, but if you're talking about something like, say, the intuition deduction thesis, we're not talking necessarily about innatism there because none of that has to be innate so i in terms of setting the scene i tend to just ask students you know i show them a picture of a a newborn baby on the board and just say what do you think this baby knows and they describe various things that they think the baby knows and often it's that you know that it's warm or that they're hungry or things like that and we talk a bit about do they know that? You know, is are they experiencing that? So we talk about things like acquaintance knowledge and ability knowledge and propositional knowledge and you know, does a baby that, that is crying for some reason know it's crying because it's hungry or not crying because it's thirsty or whatever? Does it know that or is it just sort of reacting to this new experience around it? And even if it is, is it learning it's hungry now? Is it experiencing its hunger? And you know, is there anything it comes out straight away? knowing, even if it can't speak yet, you know, is there knowledge there wait, waiting? And we talk about what knowledge that might be. Um, so most, I think most actually of the students I've ever taught this, no one ever says they come out, they are born with with knowledge. So no one has actually said they, they have an actual statement of knowledge they could say if they're magically able to talk right now. But when we probe a bit, you know, I ask them things like ethics, you know, do, do you think we have a sort of moral intuition or some sort of, sense of right and wrong that we just know inside us and if so did we have that when we're born you know does that baby come out with that or is that something we put into ourselves as a society as time goes on or you know when you're coming out of the womb and you get all this sense data just smashing into you you know is there something there that allows you to be able to sort it out organize it figure out that that's this color that's that color and they're two different things or do you have to learn that because you know some of psychology looks into things about how uh, you know in neuroscience about how we do start to to learn to separate different experiences and understand the world we're experiencing and things like that and we basically just talk about that you know how much knowledge does that does that newborn baby have and do we agree and can we call it knowledge and all that sort of thing and that really does set the scene of, of starting to show from what they say whether we think that's empirically derived or whether there's got to be something already there and the big one for me with the is the the analogy i tend to do of a a computer and just sort of say you know if you type a command into a computer to open a program or something um would that work if there wasn't already some programming in the computer that says when these commands are hit that program runs if there was none of that initial programming then you're just sort of clicking an icon and nothing happens what What is, you know, would you say that that computer therefore has some sort of inbuilt knowledge that if that button hits that icon, this must open? Or is that nothing until you actually do hit the icon and then it sort of learns what to do? And we, we talk about that analogy a bit and sort of whether you need this, this inbuilt setup to experience things and, and
0: build stuff from that. Great. Thanks, Dan. Um Sally, any thoughts from you then on uh, initial setup?
1: Yeah, I think. One thing that often happens, just kind of probably echoing what, what Dan's just said, is students will immediately start talking about instinct. And we need to avoid that, please. <laughs> um, particularly if they do psychology. And you're like, okay, what do babies know? They know how to cry. You know? Um, you know They know how to get food. And I think we need to be very careful that we're not conflating propositional knowledge with behavioural instincts, just as a, a warning. <laughs> um, but as soon as you've kind of swept them off the table, then it is very difficult. And obviously it's the it's the experiment none of us can do. <laughs> you know, obviously, we'd solve this if we took a small child and locked them in a dark box for a while and then saw what they knew in a few years. But, you know, no one's going to do that. Um, and very often when we do find children who haven't been exposed to the same socialization as as most of us, again, we're very, we're very much looking at behavioral patterns rather than knowledge. It's just something that potentially is actually unverifiable, which is really a point that could possibly be your conclusion for any S on innateism. There's no way for us to tell what is or isn't there at the point of birth because as soon as you're articulating anything you've been exposed to experience so sorry i didn't mean to sort of stop the debate before we started there but no, <laughs> potentially because... it's an unsolvable question yeah. okay great. well
0: that, that, there's your conclusion everyone in the next section we're going to do a lot on innateism but just before we get to that do you want to have a brief definitional uh thoughts about rationalism and empiricism then that we're going to meet as we go through thoughts about that
1: Okay, I mean, I'd probably say that the empiricist view is that there is no synthetic a priori knowledge, definitely no innate knowledge, and the mind would be a a tabula rasa at birth. Whereas rationalism, there is at least some a priori knowledge through reason, which may be innate, it may be through intuition, or it may be deduction. But there's at least some interesting, significant synthetic knowledge through reason alone.
0: That's great. Um, Listen, thanks. That's really good setup from both of you. Let's leave things there, and we'll see you in the next part where we think a lot about innate knowledge. And welcome back. Uh, Before we move into this segment, just to remind you to check out our website, with all of our recordings on Philosophy Get Schools. We've got loads of topics on ethics and moral philosophy, on philosophy, religion, and epistemology. Uh, I hope from sometime in the summer we'll be recording lots of episodes in Philosophy of Mind as well. Um, Please check them out, and uh, I hope you enjoy them and find them useful. Okay, so we've introduced the idea of reason being a source of knowledge and giving you lots of distinctions that are going to be important in what's to come. And we've just introduced the idea of innate knowledge, which is what we're going to discuss in this segment and go through various examples and debates on the AQA spec. So we're going to start uh, back in ancient Greece and think about Plato. Sally, do you want to tell us all about Plato, please?
1: Sure. Okay, so Plato... um was a rationalist, um, very much so. Um, he was taught by Socrates, and Socrates wrote nothing down, but Plato wrote everything down, and he loved himself for dialogue. Um, and Socrates is very often one of the characters in this dialogue, looking incredibly clever, running rings around everybody else. Um, and that's how we know about Plato's view on innate knowledge. So it's through this dialogue uh, with Socrates as one of the characters in the dialogue called Mino. So in this in this dialogue, Socrates is walking and talking with his friend Mino. And trying to prove that innate knowledge actually exists. And he said, Well, look, there's, there's no such thing as learning. Because if you you can't learn, because if you any for it to learn anything, either you know it or you don't know it. If you know it, learning's unnecessary. If you don't know it, you don't know how to go about learning it. <laughs> so there's no such thing as learning, which is where all of this is going. And at the time it was perfectly acceptable for um rich people to keep slaves. So Mino had this slave boy who'd been born in the um, in the house. So we, we could be absolutely sure he'd had no education at all. So what Socrates did is he took this boy and started drawing in the sand, drawing squares in the sand. And I shall not be going into the details of the maths, but what he did is he, he got the boy to prove Pythagoras's theorem with a lot of squares and a lot of triangles drawn in the sand and he asked him a series of questions the boy answered those questions and then Socrates said look you know this boy has had no education no experience of maths yet he knows maths he has this knowledge and if it's not through experience he has to have been born with it it has to have already been in his mind from birth and he's very clear you know these these ideas this knowledge is all his own so it has to have been there present from birth that's that's Plato's proof that there, you know, there is innate knowledge, and for Plato, all of the everything we think is learning is actually a process of remembering. So we're born with all knowledge. For Plato, everything is innate. Whether that's particulars like you know, um, you know two plus two equals four, or you know, the sky is blue, or more general concepts such as beauty, justice, equality, all of that has to be present from birth. But experience can't give it to us. You know, it, it's not rich enough. It's too fleeting. Um, and too impermanent to ever give us that knowledge. So we acquire that in what he calls the ideal realm, the realm of forms. And it's an a priori acquisition of knowledge where our souls exist. Um, Then we become physical beings. The process of that, we forget a lot. And then all through life is a process of remembering. Now, we may need questioning to to reveal what's already there, but it is already there. So next time you're in a, a maths class and your teacher's teaching you maths, they're revealing the knowledge that you have already. It's innate. They're not teaching you anything new. So the only role experience has is to reveal what's there, not to not to give you anything new. Um, and he feels that this is a, a very convincing proof. I'm sure we should perhaps say otherwise. <laughs> he yeah. thinks it's uh, the proof of innate knowledge.
0: OK, great. That's lovely, Sally. Listen, shall we um, go straight on to Leibniz and then, then go on to some criticisms of, of these views? So, Dan, do you want to take us through Leibniz? A little bit, would that be all right?
2: Yeah, um, I think it's good doing them together because I I always sort of frame this to students by saying essentially what both Plato and Leibniz are trying to do is if they can show just one example of some sort of knowledge that we can't trace back to experience, then we've got this argument for uh, rationalism or innatism specifically. Because if we're thinking about this as a sort of how do we get our knowledge, is it empirical, is it rational? Well, the empiricist claim is that all knowledge comes from experience. So, to just debunk that one example that says, well, not this knowledge, this knowledge doesn't, that's what we need. So, um, as Sally just said, you know, if Plato's slave boy has has demonstrated this, then we have a good example. The problem with Plato and why I think Leibniz is, is a really important thinker here is, as Sally said, Plato's entire innatism has this whole metaphysics about forms and souls and the ideal realm that has to explain where that came from so if i do want to use the slave boy example and say that is my one example i'm going to use i sort of end up having to buy into this whole metaphysics that maybe i don't want to have to buy into whereas leibniz gives us more of the example and the argument than necessarily having to buy into any Leibniz's metaphysics as to to why that is. So essentially, um, he's trying to do the exact same thing. If I can show you evidence of something that you can't possibly have from experience. And the example he uses in the new essays on human understanding, which is actually a rebuttal specifically to everything that Locke says. So when we look later at Locke's arguments, Leibniz is saying this sort of to Locke in the form of a dialogue, basically aimed at what Locke has said. And the example is of necessary truths, which we mentioned earlier. Essentially, there are truths, contingent truths, necessary truths, like we've said. When something's a necessary truth, it has to be the case in every situation, in all contexts, always. So if I put three plus three together, it is six and it's always six. It's not sometimes six today, but not six tomorrow. It's always six. And the whole point here is if we can show that there is something we know that we can't have learned from experience, then we can't say all knowledge comes from experience. And when I observe a necessary truth, not just a truth, the necessity bit that I recognize as being necessary is something I recognize, something I know that is necessarily the case. necessarily means it's true in all possible worlds, in any possible time that this comes up. And I haven't experienced that. I can't experience that. I can't experience every single possible instance of three plus three becoming six. So how do I know that it is true in every possible instance? How do I know that that truth holds necessarily? So necessity, the necessity of the claim, and this is the important bit. He's not saying that we're born with this sort of list of necessary truths in our head that we can sort of just churn out because we already know that. But when we recognize, when we learn a necessarily true proposition or something that is necessarily true, We understand its necessity and we recognize that necessity and we know that it's a necessary truth and not a contingent truth and we can't have experienced its necessity. That bit is not contained within the experience and therefore there is something in that knowledge that hasn't come from the experience because it is impossible for it to have come from the experience. So the fact that we know something is necessarily true when we see it, yes, we have to experience whatever it is we see to recognize its necessity, but the necessity bit we can never experience and so that knowledge of necessary truths must come a priori before experience and must have been there from the start
0: within us to be able to know propositions like that great thanks dan so um there we've got these two kind of discussions then of innate knowledge right uh, and then we've got these different counters that we can think about. But notice something, students, that Dan mentioned, right? Leibniz is responding to Locke. We're about to discuss Locke. So we're trying to create a philosophical narrative, which isn't the same as the temporal narrative, right? So there's Plato in ancient Greece. And then we fast forward 2,000 years to all of these early modern Europeans doing different things. And we've got Leibniz. But before Leib- slightly before Leibniz, in the timeline, you've got Locke. And then we've got Hume, who comes a bit later, right? But Locke and Hume are on the empiricist side, or at least the side that are kind of wondering whether there's any innate knowledge. So should we think about those counters then um, and start with Locke? Uh, Sally, do you want to take take Locke on?
1: Sure. So, I mean, Locke, <laughs> to, to maintain his empiricism, has to prove that there is no innate knowledge. Um, otherwise, empiricism fails. So he has this idea of the mind as a as a tabula rasa, so a kind of a blank slate, white tablet. Sometimes people think about it as like a a white piece of paper. So mind is is born with nothing, and then experience imprints. But in order to, yeah, so all of our ideas, all of our um, knowledge has to come from experience. But then he has to prove that innate knowledge isn't there. So one of the things he says is he's got no time for this idea of knowledge that you don't know you know <laughs> so this idea of you know for Plato this knowledge lying dormant until you know a clever teacher reveals what's already there um you know, Leibniz has a similar idea that you know knowledge can lie dormant like the veins in marble which would form a statue if only somebody would just reveal it but it's already there you now we've got these dispositions to knowledge and for for Locke that makes no sense if you've got knowledge it's present in the mind you you are aware of it so firstly, you've got to be aware of it. Secondly, if it was innate, it would be universal. You know, We would all have it, yet there is no universal assent over any piece of innate knowledge. So in a very politically incorrect style, he says, look, children and idiots um, do not express any knowledge of maths and logic, these supposedly innate truth and so I'm assuming by idiots he means the kind of uneducated as most of them <laughs> saw the uneducated at that time um you know but there's nothing that we all agree on that is present in the mind of everybody so you know uh, there's no children articulating this innate knowledge so for him that's a decent enough proof that it, it doesn't exist
0: great and Danny I think from you on on commenting on
2: Locke yeah I mean I think Locke has two strategies he's he says what, what Sally says he says which is. You know, basically, he creates a caricature, almost a straw man of the innatist. If the innatist is is serious about what they say, we'd have this innate knowledge. Everyone would have it, but there's no such knowledge. But then he does something a bit cleverer than his straw man. He says, and even if we did have that knowledge, if you could point to something and say, actually, this is universal. This is something even children and idiots know. It still wouldn't be proof that innatism is true if we can explain it empirically in some way. So, his sort of two-pronged strategy is to paint what innatism should entail, if it was true, knowing that maybe no innatist actually argues that that is what it would entail, but just saying, look, this is what your theory should show in the world. And it doesn't. But even if there was something that we can say, so like I've told you about necessary truths, Plato's shown us the, um, the, 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 the slave boy known geometry. If there is something that seems like it can't be explained, if we can explain it empirically, then we've, countered that argument too and that's where he sort of comes up with this idea of trying to show that even these seemingly impossible to have experienced ideas that we have might be empirically derived if we can break them down from this sort of complex idea that they are into the simple building blocks of an original experience somewhere so you could point to something like a unicorn that no one has obviously experienced because they don't exist and go well hang on luck how come i have got this idea of a unicorn in my head that I've definitely never experienced because that can't have come from experience. And Locke can say, absolutely, you haven't experienced a unicorn, but you have experienced things like horses, things like animals with horns. And you can combine those two experiences together and be creative with the things that you have experienced. But your building blocks of your creativity in your mind, the things that your mind is putting together, have all been derived
0: through an initial experience. Great, thank you. So, um, Sally, do you want to take us on to Hume then, and think about ideas yeah, sure. and impressions?
1: Yeah, I mean, Hume's saying something very similar, and he's on a you know, very anti-Cartesian <laughs> mission here. Very kind of very keen to prove that uh, again that there are no innate uh, well, there's no innate concepts. He's talking more about concepts and ideas here than, than knowledge, but it still supports the tabula rasa view. So, Hume says, you know, there's two kinds of perceptions. There's impressions. And there's ideas. So if we think of impressions as experiences, so they can be external, you know, I can perceive a green tree or I can have an internal impression. I can feel anger or hunger. And then ideas are kind of what we do with those later. So I can think about it. I can have a memory of it. I can imagine it again. The relationship between them is really important. So for Hume, he's got this copy principle and all ideas, categorically, every idea is a copy of an earlier impression. That's going to be really, really important to him. But the ideas are always less lively and vivid than the impression itself. So if you think about kind of the feeling of anger, that's always going to be stronger and more lively and vivid than when you think about it a bit later, which is why we feel so stupid when we realise what we did in anger is like, oh, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) So there's always that kind of, it copies, ideas copy impressions like a faithful mirror, but maybe like a dull mirror, if you like. So very much like Locke, um, if you think you've got an idea that's not come from an impression, it has, but it will be a complex idea that's come from a simple idea that will have come from an impression. So for Hume, we can or have these simple ideas that we've got from our, our impressions. We can augment them, make them bigger. We can diminish them, make them smaller. We can compound them, stick them together, or we can transpose them. So if I'm thinking of a giant penguin in the Gobi Desert, I've augmented and transposed various ideas that I will have experience of. So Hume uses the example of a golden mountain. So I haven't, I haven't experienced that, but I have experienced the simple ideas of golden mountain and weirdly a, a virtuous horse. <laughs> so you know, I've experienced virtuous people, I've experienced horses, I stick them together, I get a virtuous horse. So he's taken this very kind of scientific approach to the study of the mind, um, which is, again reflectively kind of Enlightenment era. And he gives you two proofs of this theory. So the first proof is any complex idea can be broken down to a simple idea and traced to impressions. Okay, So he uses the idea of God, and he would have been well aware that Descartes thought God was an innate idea. But he said, actually, if you look at things that you've experienced, often within ourselves, I've got a little bit of wisdom, I love people, I have a moderate amount of power. If you compound that and augment it without limits, there's your idea of God, very similar to the way we create the idea of Superman, which obviously would have gone down brilliantly at the time that he was writing. He had to be so careful with his, his atheistic views. The other one that's really important, the other proof, is that if you don't have the impression, you don't have the idea. So if you can't experience it, you can't think about it. So the blind man has no notion of colour nor the deaf man of sound because they're unable to experience these things to form the, the concepts of them. And again, this is going to become quite important later on when we look at things like the um, knowledge of the Kigito, um, because Hume's going to, that's quite an important tool to, to criticise that yeah so sorry leave it there
0: (laughs) okay thanks Sally and and Dan so then we've got these this kind of setup so then I'm going to invite two of you so so what what do you think right are there kind of have we got a score draw here um do you think because there's some interesting counter examples as well kind of we can bring in here that in fact that some of the writers themselves think about so so where, where are you with with this debate so far
1: I think it's quite interesting about what we're saying about the timeline as well, about Leibniz um, being a response to Locke, because he does actually address some of the things that, that Locke said. One of them is the idea of having knowledge that you're not aware of. And that's where he talks about knowledge existing as dispositions, like potentials to knowledge. And it may lie dormant the whole life, just like the veins in the marble might lie dormant if no sculptor comes and reveals a statue. He's also... Got a response to this idea that you know these these children idiots are not articulating the laws of logic. Well, firstly, of course they're not. Children don't articulate anything when they're born. Um, and secondly, just because you're not articulating it doesn't mean you haven't got knowledge of it. So if you take, you know, if you take something like a laws of logic, like white is not black, well, no, children don't know that, but they do know if uh, A is A. You know, and they will if you tell a child that you know this teddy bear can't be your teddy bear and not be your teddy bear at the same time, they won't articulate it, but they will act with that knowledge, you know, my my sweets can't be in the in the tin and not in the tin at the same time. They will behave in a way that that displays that knowledge. So you know Leibniz has got quite a strong argument for those things being there innately, necessary truths and, and logical truths.
0: Yeah, good. So in fact that there's something to be aware of students, that there's all these different terms flying around like knowledge and concepts. And actually, the terms of the debate themselves are very interesting about whether, for Locke, basically, um, you can only have knowledge if you can articulate it. I mean, that's very rough, right? That's basically kind of a lot of what Sally was saying. Whereas someone like Lyman doesn't doesn't agree with that, right? And so think about what does it take for you to have knowledge? What are the criteria? That itself is something that's going on in the background here about saying whether... You have knowledge, or indeed concepts that are innate or aren't innate, and that's something just to pick up on if you can. Um, Dan, have you got any th- thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, one of the things I'd say about the you know is it a score draw? Is it might be um, because maybe both sides is having having both sides is the problem. We've articulated like it has to be empiricism versus rationalism, and what it sounds like the rationalists are all saying we need some sort of Empirical trigger, whether it's the questions from Socrates or experiencing the things that I identify as a necessary truth. And Locke is sort of doing a shifty move as well by dismissing certain things as instinct, because, you know, we have this apparent ability to take simple ideas and turn them into something complex. And Hume says the same thing. We can do all this lovely stuff in our mind with these ideas. And that's not knowledge that's an ability or it's a capacity or it's an instinct and stuff like that and it does feel like well is it or is it some sort of form of potential knowledge that when i first receive all this information through the senses i can sort and sift and shape and move things around and i have some sort of knowledge of how to do that because that's how i do it it's maybe a choice to call something like that not knowledge and call it just a capacity so in a way lock brackets out lots of things that could be considered potential evidence of knowledge and goes oh no that's that's just a, an instinct that's just a capacity and leibniz at least acknowledges and plato at least acknowledges well there is some element of empiricism to get to that innate knowledge that we've got inside us but then you can ask the question well if if you don't know it, unless you've had this sort of empirical trigger if there hasn't been some sort of experience to unlock the knowledge then can you really say it's knowledge without experience? So to me, the sort of score draw seems there's an entanglement of empiricism and rationalism and you can't have one without the other. And it feels like almost a false dichotomy to say, must it be one or the other, when both sides are doggedly sticking to their position by just mischaracterizing the bits of their theory if you're an empiricist that are innate or if you're an innatist that are empirical and saying, yeah, but there's not. And on that basis... I kind of give the innatists a higher score because I say at least they acknowledge the empirical roots and they say, we're not saying all knowledge, we're just saying some. So there's kind of seems a more reasonable project than the empiricist mm-hmm. project.
1: Yeah, I, tell you, I, mean, I think um, it's a really difficult thing to establish if experience is involved, what is revealed by experience and what is given by experience. That's a very difficult thing to, to, to look at. I mean, yeah, even going back to the... Meno and the slave boy if you have, i mean i'm not suggesting kind of read the whole thing but if you look at the way these questions are posed you know i mean I mean, socrates and, and the boy having this dialogue and a the square then is a figure all four of whose sides are equal yes indeed and it also has equal lines so through the middle yes and a figure like this could be bigger or smaller certainly and then you know the dialogue is like yes yes or well, socrates i do yes indeed yes and i you know and, and any primary school teacher will tell you that to make a child feel like they've got knowledge there already when you're blatantly giving it to them <laughs> and make them feel like it's all their own you know is is a teaching skill yeah and i think when you actually dr- drill down to the meno, there's a lot of that going on there
0: <laughs> lots of leading questions i think
1: yeah
2: yeah yeah i would say same with Leibniz. this idea that we know it's necessary and we can't experience all possible worlds you you could respond to by saying well if we can't experience it, them then we don't know it we we've got this construct that we've invented that says it's necessary because we've created this system of maths or of logic with certain terms that mean certain things within the game we play of that particular logical structure. And within that, it has to be true. But we don't know for sure that it's true in all possible worlds because of the exact point that we haven't experienced it. So the idea that he sort of points to to say there is something you haven't experienced, so we know it anyway, you could flip that around easily and go, well, then we don't know it.
0: Great. Okay, well, listen... um, uh, let's leave it there. Thanks very much both of you for all of that summary. We'll see you in the next part when we think about some ideas from Descartes. Okay, and welcome back. Okay, so let's have a bit of a bit of a recap, which I'll try to do as briefly as I can. So we've seen that there are, in fact, two debates as to whether reason can be a source of knowledge. So we've been focusing on a priori knowledge because a posteriori knowledge comes from perception. We've just been examining whether a priori knowledge is simply innate, right? And we've seen Locke, Leibniz, Hume, Plato. So now we need to think about whether any a priori knowledge comes from reasoning. And that takes us to a debate, or kind of differently worded debate, of rationalism versus empiricism, okay? So on the AQA spec, this section is often referred to as intuition and deduction, okay? So we're going to try and take you through all of this, if we can. But this is kind of philosophical heroism, because this is a huge amount of material we're going to try and compact into 20 minutes. But Sally and Dan say they're up for it, so let's give it a go, okay? We can do it. Okay, so we thought we'd, we'd set the scene, right? Remember, Hume is writing after Descartes, quite a quite a while after, but we're going to set the scene by thinking about Hume's fork and then applying it every so often to some of the ideas we're, we're going to talk about through Descartes and the meditations. So Sally, do you want to start us with Hume's fork then?
1: Sure, okay. So Hume's fork is so cool, but you've got to think um, more like a tuning fork. We've got about potentially three prongs on this, um, even though it seems like two. So Hume says all objects of human reason inquiry are going to fall into one of two camps, if they're going to be meaningful. So relations of ideas we would now call analytic. And these are, they can be known a priori. Um, they are true by definition. They cannot be denied without contradiction. So for example, if I was to say two plus two does not equal four, I'm not making logical sense. If I say a triangle does not have three sides, then I'm not making logical sense. My, you know, I'm contradicting, uh, contradicting myself. And even though they are, they provide certainty, they provide no knowledge of the world. You know, I, can, I can know that a triangle has three sides a priori. It tells me nothing about the way the world is or whether Toblerone is triangle-shaped. You know, a priori knowledge is limited to these empty relations of ideas. On the other side, you've got your matters of fact, which you would now call um, synthetic. These are known a posteriori, and they do add to our knowledge of the world. So, for example, if I was to say the sky is blue, that tells me something I didn't know by just an- analysing the word sky. So these are these non-tautological um, truths that give us this new information. They can be denied without contradiction. So if I was to say the sky is not blue, I might be wrong. But my words still make sense. It's not a logical contradiction. So Hume says it's no less intelligible to say the sun will not rise tomorrow than to say it will. I'm wrong, but the words still still make sense. So matters of fact can always be otherwise. They can always change. And it's going to be thing about Hume's four because it's going to become significant in lots of different areas, you know, philosophy of religion. Um, it keeps coming back to haunt us. So it's really important to to get that right. Um, but Hume Hume does say if, if a proposition or you know a, a supposed piece of knowledge falls into neither camp, then it falls into that third prong, which is nonsense. Okay, if he, and and he actually, you know, it, it's the basis of AJA's verification principle, but more flamboyant. <laughs> um and he says to go into go into a library and pick up a book. And if it concerns abstract number reasoning, if it's basically analytic relations of ideas, great. If it concerns experimental reasoning, things you can experience and go out and see and touch, great. You know, if not. Commit it to the flames because it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. So he's telling you to go to libraries and burn the books that are about religion, ethics, um, aesthetics. You know, anything where it, it's not a relation of ideas or a matter of fact is only going to lead you into error. Kind of dramatic from Hume there, but it's, it's good stuff.
0: <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, Sally. Okay, so now we're going to go through a few things from Descartes, but keep on coming back to Hume's Fork. So in other episodes, we discuss Descartes and other people on the ontological argument and on the cosmological argument. So we're not going to talk about those here. We might reference them, I'm sure, but but they're kind of treated in other episodes. But we are going to think about Descartes' cogito, clear and distinct ideas, and all being well, the trademark arguments. So Dan, do you want to start us thinking about Descartes then? Would that be okay?
2: Yeah, I mean, essentially, we're looking here for Descartes to do what Hume says is the impossible. Descartes is going to try and give us some substantive, synthetic knowledge about the world um, that is not trivial through pure a priori reasoning. Because for Descartes, he's doing this whole project of what can I know? You know, is there anything I can't possibly doubt? And in the very start of the meditations, he gets rid of all empirical knowledge. He can't use empirical. Uh, groundings for anything because his hyperbolic doubt says if it's anything I can possibly doubt I've got to get rid of it and his three waves of doubt very quickly he looks at the world he said I can't trust my senses because they've tricked me I might be dreaming and there might be an evil demon tricking me everywhere I look so I can't trust anything that comes from the senses is there anything in that situation that I can still say I know famously he sort of says well if I'm being deceived if I'm doubting then I must exist to be deceived and to doubt I think therefore I am Therefore, I know I exist even if I can't trust my senses, which seems like he's just done the impossible. He's, he's got this, I can't use the senses. I've got just pure reason. You know, Pure reason tells me even if everything in my senses is false, I still must exist. So I know without the senses that I exist. So I've now got a substantive synthetic claim, Descartes exists in the world, but I haven't got there through experiencing Descartes because I can't use my senses. So he claims. And we're calling this the intuition and deduction thesis, um, at least the AQA is calling it that, because the thesis is through pure intuition, a priori, you can use deductive logic, use some of those necessary truths that Leibniz has told us about, the logical entailment of that initial intuition, and come to a conclusion that tells us something substantive about the world, a synthetic piece of knowledge. And that's the first example of Descartes doing this at the start of his meditations. And we're going to claim, or at least Descartes will be made to say he claims according to the AQA that he does this. Although it's worth pointing out Descartes not trying to do this. Descartes is just trying to see what he knows and ultimately try and prove God exists because that's what he really was trying to do. But we're sort of looking back at this with the lens of the rationalist empiricist debate and saying, oh, well they say you can't do this, but Descartes done this. So, What Descartes is going to do from his own existence is go, not only can I say I exist using this method, I can tell you that God exists, and we can see that the external world exists, which are all massive substantial claims about the world, which if this thesis is correct, he's come to
0: through pure a priori intuition and deduction. Great. So can I ask the the two of you now, so how do you normally take this on in the classroom? Do you keep on going back to Hume or go through Descartes? What would you like to do?
1: i would usually with the cogito go back to hume not his human uh-huh. not hume's thought, but the theory of ideas we looked at earlier because i mean descartes has the cogito as an example of rational intuition at this point there's not even any deduction involved so when he says i am i exist so ego sum ego existo, he just says this is necessarily true every time i express it or i conceive it um I don't, so he, he's kind of saying i don't need to explain this to you so when i think of intuition I think of, you know, when you have um, a cartoon and they have an idea and a light bulb kind of goes, bing, above their head. You know, you don't need to explain it. You don't need to work it out. It's just a rational insight, fully formed knowledge. But there's, you know, whichever form, I mean, the, the I am, I exist, ego the ego existo is the one in the meditations. But it's this I that is problematic. And Descartes is claiming knowledge of this I, of this, this self. So what we can then do, we can quite neatly map Hume's theory of ideas onto that. So where Hume said, look, if you don't have the impression, you do not have the idea. If you think you do, then you're confused. So next question, where's your impression of self? And Hume is very sceptical about this kind of this ownership of thought, this you know, this I. So he says, well, try to catch yourself without any particular thought or perception. Try and capture the I." And you can't do it. It's a really good thing to actually try to just kind of like, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to experience myself. And you won't do it. You'll experience a thought and a perception, a feeling, and a bit of boredom or whatever else it is, but you won't capture the self because there is no impression of self. You can't get to it. So for Hume, you have no clear idea of self. You're fooling yourself if you think you do. It's an illusion. And if there's no idea of it, there's no knowledge of it. So he's straight back at Descartes, like, no, no, you thought you had synthetic a priori knowledge, but you don't. You're confused.
2: Yeah, another thing uh, I tend to talk to students about is, at best, maybe Descartes, with this pure intuition, proves hypothetically that if there was some deceiving and doubting and thinking going on, then there would be something existing to do that. But for him to say, I am being deceived, therefore I exist, or I think, therefore I am, he has to experience him thinking. He has to, because unless he's experienced it, he can't. So, kind of, if you add that with Hume, Hume says, You can't experience yourself. And if Descartes ever managed to turn around and say, well, actually, I did. This is when I experienced myself. Then we've got him there as well. Because, yep, okay, you've experienced yourself, and that's how you know you exist. You're basically saying, back to Hume's fork, a tautology if I exist, I exist. Or I'm thinking, therefore I exist, which is true. But the question of, but do you exist? That bit is the synthetic bit, which he hasn't actually proven unless he experiences himself thinking.
1: About the most you can get is of the thought going on. Yeah, we can, we can give it. That's a thought happening, but that's not exciting. <laughs> it doesn't,
0: doesn't really get.
1: There's it, it does a
0: thought. That's why he tried Yeah, yeah, good. And and so just to throw another uh, thought into the another thought ho ho into the mix um, that students can play around with. So perhaps there are thoughts happening, and perhaps at the moment where there are thoughts happening, there is a thinker having thoughts. The key thing that Descartes is trying to establish is that there is a thinker brackets persisting through different thoughts presumably at different times close brackets and that's the thing Hume is kind of really worrying about because he's saying you're just kind of imposing or assuming illegitimately this thinker persisting through time persisting through different thoughts that it's the same thinker and you're calling that I at most what you have are thoughts and at any particular time, there's a thinker having those thoughts, but whether it's the same thinker or there's some connection between this thinker at time one and this thinker at time two, that's up for grabs, guys. That's not being proved. And that's a kind of interesting, another different different way into, into it, into what he was trying to do here. So, yeah, so that's that's that one, shy at the water. <laughs> Should we mention clear and distinct ideas and use that as a way into some of the other things that? Descartes says because that's very important for him isn't it so yeah I mean
2: clear and distinct ideas is Descartes sort of beacon of things he can know when he's looking for things he can know and doubting everything and he's sort of using I think clear and distinct ideas as another way of saying something that must necessarily be true almost the, the idea of necessary truths that we've already met with, with Leibniz but he's sort of saying when I think of something and through the clear light of reason, it just must be true, then it's clear and distinct to me. It has to be the case, and therefore it is true. So if I have a clear and distinct idea of something, something that's not muddy, something that I can't doubt, something that must be the case, then it is just true. So it's this sort of, again, an intuition, a hunch he has going into the meditations that says, when I am looking in my mind at all this sort of thinking, all these ideas, all these thoughts, I can recognize some of these are not to be trusted. Some of these can be jettisoned. Some of these might be a malicious demon tricking me, but if it's clear and if it's distinct, if it's the the light of reason is shining bright and it's undeniable, indubitable, then that's something that must be true. And you can see with, with the cogito, that's that's an example of it. So he he tries to get rid of everything, but he can't deny that if he is being deceived, then he exists. That is just bright, there, true. It must be the case. You can't deny it. So it feels clear and distinct to him, but. At this point in his project, he's, um, he's still not sure what he knows, what he doesn't know. He's just sort of kicking around ideas that are coming to him. But his sort of working thesis is that if I have a clear and distinct idea, it's true. And then later on, he's going to have a great confirmation of this, which is also going to be his undoing, because like in everything in Descartes, it sounds brilliant, but it's absolutely terrible. Um <laughs> <laughs> which you know, i know he's great but i do think the only reason he is great in history is because we love kicking his ideas around so every year new philosophers learn about them and destroy and dissect them which has kept him in the canon but um it's not a positive place the canon it's uh doesn't this sound good to make you feel like he said something well here's all the reasons he's wrong so clear and distinct ideas at the moment sound like that but at the moment, it's just a kind of intuition and a hunch he's got and he
0: needs a bit more work to do to to know for sure that he can trust them. Okay, thanks, Dan. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so I think I've said this on a different episode. So whenever I'm teaching Descartes, I haven't taught it for a few years, my you know, first-year students love the first two meditations and then it all goes downhill from there. But never poor, as soon as God
1: gets involved, and that's part of the problem with clean, distinct ideas as well, it falls into this horrible circularity. Because, you know, he gets this idea, okay, well, what was it about the Kagito was so great? It's clarity and distinctness. Okay, anything with that clarity and distinctness is true. Well, how do you know that if there's potential for an evil demon? Well, he has to use clear and distinct ideas to show that God exists and is not a deceiver. But then you can't trust clear and distinct ideas until you know God exists and he's not a deceiver. So God exists and he's not a deceiver because he's the one guaranteeing those clear and distinct ideas that tell you he's not a deceiver. So, yeah, God's not a deceiver because he says so. <laughs> and, and that's one of the main problems in 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 descartes meditations as a whole i don't think he knows what his true foundation is he, he's like i'm gonna eat cogito for the you know, for everybody who's a philosopher but really it's God. <laughs> and i think that's a that's a problem <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so listen you just mentioned uh god sally mm-hmm. so uh dan i think you're going to take us through trademark and then Sally's going to take us through external world. So do you want to take us through? So I've mentioned we, we, we do the ontological and cosmological and other episodes, but we're going to do trademark here. So do you want to take us through trademark for us?
2: Yeah, I'll take us through ta- trademark, but we do have to sort of briefly mention the ontological argument as well. And and it's quite important, and it's, I would say, more important than the trademark argument. And and this shows one of the problems, again, with Descartes' attempt at this intuition deduction thesis, because he's about to say, right, one thing I know, I exist. Is there anything else in these thoughts that I've got that I can say is something else I know that's not just from me? Because I know I'm a mind and I know I exist now and I could be making up some of these things, but is there anything in my mind that's not from me that I can't source back to me as as the source of that? And he is going to make this argument, but what's important is, according to how we're placing this in the spec, this is him using pure a priori intuition and now he's starting to kind of make deductions to say something. But what's he doing? Well he's he's looking in his mind at ideas. And Locke, which we haven't mentioned, says that when you're talking about empirical sources, you've got two, you've got sensation, the empirical sensation, but you've also got reflection, where you can experience things like your thoughts. So just to flag up, at this point in the supposed thesis, Descartes is starting to experience his thoughts and think about what's in there that's not from him. So if you accept that this is still coming from an a priori intuition, even though he's experiencing his thoughts, he finds this idea of God inside him. And he says, "Ah, God, that can't possibly have come from me because I am a finite and imperfect being. And the idea I have of God is of an infinite and perfect being. And then he just pulls out of thin air this principle that he decides is true, which is that the effect of something can't have sort of more reality than, than the cause of that thing. So if I have an effect that is infinite and perfect, then for me to have caused it, I would also have to be infinite and perfect. And I can't, I'm not that. So I can't have caused that. Something infinite and perfect must have caused that. Well, then that must be God, because God is the only infinite and perfect thing. So why have I got this idea in my head? Well, God must have put it in there like a trademark. So we've got a story with Descartes of if we have innate knowledge, where did it come from? Well, it came from God. God trademarks it in there like any creator, craftsman, when he makes something, stamps the name of himself, the artist, into the uh, the creation. But if, if we're using this as part of the intuition and deduction thesis, all Descartes done here is from this intuition that he exists he can now separate there's this other thing that doesn't come from him that is this idea of god and then he goes well if it's an infinitely perfect being what does that mean what does a supremely perfect being mean and here's where the ontological argument comes because this is actually the only bit with intuition and deduction to an actual claim about the world because all he's got now is there's an idea of god in in my head but once he's got the idea he can say because the idea is of this supremely perfect being and it can't have come from me then what does supremely perfect mean? Well, it must have all the perfections, including existence. If it doesn't have that, then it wouldn't be perfect. It is supremely perfect, so God must necessarily exist. The ontological argument. So we now can say, substantive synthetic claim, there is a God in the world. But as I've been sort of flagging up, and Sally already talked about earlier, Locke has already told us, uh, or sorry, Hume has already told us, how you can come up with the idea of God from empirical origins. There's a lot that he's just sort of fudging here and saying, well, there's this idea that must be from God that I can't have possibly come up with and it means God exists. We've got all the problems with the ontological argument, which you've looked at in another podcast where lots of people might say, hang on, have you actually proven that God exists? And you've got the problems that the trademark argument itself is an example of experience. It's experiencing his own thoughts. So again, we have the hypothetical If that idea of God that I have were to have not been made by me, it might have been made by this supremely perfect being, which if such a being existed, would necessarily exist, which is all just some relations of ideas again and nothing actually synthetic and substantive until maybe we experience God. And then we could say there is a God because we experience God. So we're trying to do this intuition deduction thesis. He's really trying. But... It does seem like this is the dodgiest bit of his whole argument because he sort of fudges over some experience, steals an ontological argument that's already failed when other philosophers have used it to then claim he's, you know, there is a God definitely. It's problematic. But yeah, that's all I'll say about that for now. <laughs> that
0: was a majestic summary though, Dan. I think of about two different arguments and lots of different medieval theology going going on as well. Yeah, I mean, just to summarize, just to pick out one or two things, not not everything. Yeah, so that that principle of um, at least as much reality in the cause as in the effect, which which to modern readers looks weird, but actually it was versions of that idea were kind of quite common in a lot of medieval theology and philosophy. But it seems very strange to us now, but but it was kind of there in the in the ether. So Descartes. Uh, the Descartes
2: important thing for that argument, though, is it's not. Uh, 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 an a priori intuition oh, absolutely absolutely yeah he does sort of smuggle it in if we're looking at he it does. as a pure yeah. introduction thesis that's that's yeah, yeah.
0: why that's a particularly egregious moment yeah yeah and then something that that then i mentioned but i just want to want to pause on just to relate it back to things we've been talking about with lock and, and with with Hume. so i think sally mentioned it very briefly as well in the, in the earlier part so this idea of You know, we've got God who's got all the perfections, omniscient, omnibenevolent, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, We know we're imperfect and we're finite beings, but we've got a perfect infinite being. And Descartes saying, hey, well, I couldn't have come up with those those ideas myself because I'm finite. How on earth could I have caused the idea of of infinity? But in fact, for, for quite a few commentators, such as Hume, on, on Descartes it's very easy how you come up with you just negate it right you just here are my limits and then you just imagine a thing that doesn't have limits and that's always been a big debate about whether you can easily imagine something without limits going from something that that has limits or whether it's a kind of positive imagining as it were that actually you can't just go from the idea of something having limits to not having limits but actually you need to think about that thing in and of itself, and that's always been a kind of bit of a controversial thing with the trademark argument as, as well. Um Sally, have you got any thoughts on this?
1: Well, I mean, you can directly apply Locke's lack of universal assent to the trademark argument. Um, so, if Descartes really does believe that you know God has stamped his mark, you know, like you get a piece of antique furniture and you have a little look at it and on the antiques brochure, <laughs> and they like, oh, I know when that was made and by whom because of the the, the trademark. And if God is supposedly made by God's our consciousness why has he done it so differently in different people that makes no sense you know a painter does not sign their signature differently on every piece of work if they want to be recognized and the idea is that descartes is like oh he's put the idea here so i can reflect on it and know the author of my being we'll sign it the same then, you know? and some people arguably have no idea of god at all so it's a really lovely example of of the lack of universal assent on this supposedly innate knowledge
0: great now there's one last thing on the spec and indeed in, in Descartes meditations, we better just mention. although again, we've got another episode on skepticism. So as Dan mentioned, I think um, Descartes is also interested towards the end of the meditation, having proved himself and God, at least to his satisfaction, also proving the existence of uh, the external world. So should we just kind of briefly summarize that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, this this happens in meditation six. So the, the interesting thing about the meditations, it's, it really should be understood as a whole. He, he gets himself, and then he gets God, and then he just sits like that for a few meditations. He's quite <laughs> happy. And he's like, he gets to meditation six. He's like, he's forgotten to finish. He's like, oh my goodness, I've got no body. There's no external world. <laughs> Better sort that out. Um, but he's got to do it with all he's got, which is his content of his thoughts. And he knows there's a God. Well, he thinks he knows there's a God, and that this. We, I know we've skipped over why God is benevolent, but that God is a benevolent, good, loving God. So, quite similar to his arguments for God, he's got to start with the content of his mind. And the first thing he says is, "I, I have the ideas as if of objects." So, just a, a note to students as well: don't start this deductive argument by saying, "I have the ideas of objects," because that would be assuming what you're trying to prove. But you've got these ideas as if there's objects. So I've got the idea right now that there's a, as if there's a table in front of me. And like we've already said with the trademark, every idea, according to Descartes, has to have a cause and cause must have as much reality as its effect. So what he then does is say, look, I've got these ideas as if, as if of objects. There's three possible sources. There's me, there's God, there's an actual external world. And so by process of elimination he's going to arrive at the, the external world. So he says, look, I am not causing these ideas of objects because I don't, I don't control them. They're involuntary. Uh, the, you know, the idea of this table is coming to me against my will, I can't suddenly not see it if I open my eyes. So I'm not the source of these, um, these ideas. Nor is it God, because if God was giving me these ideas of an external world when there really wasn't one, well, that's just mean, <laughs> and then God would be a deceiver. And we know God's not a deceiver, You know, along with all the problems with that. Um, so if I'm not causing these ideas of objects, and God is not causing these ideas uh, 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 of apparent objects, it's got to be an external world of objects. You know, that's all that's left as the cause of my ideas. And obviously, you know that you again have this assumption of the causal principle, You know that there must be a cause of these ideas and the cause must be as, as great or, or real as the effect. Um, but by process of elimination, he does that. And then when he does that, he also gets his body back, which is nice because then you've got the external world includes his own body.
0: Great. Thanks, Sally and Dan. Expertly summarised. because then we get a big pile on with Locke and Barclay and Hume. Hume's but we've done that. <laughs> we've done that another episode. So any last reflections from the two of you on, on all of this material? I mean, one thing that always
2: bothers me just with the intuition deduction again is this assumption that God is not a deceiver. When the whole story began with him pointing out all the times, all the time that he's deceived by his senses. So his, his starting premise is, oh, we live in a world we can't trust our senses. And often we have dreams where we think, you know, we're, we're awake and we're not awake. Um, so he, he acknowledges instances all the time in life where we're being deceived. And when he brings back the external world at the end, he doesn't resolve that and explain why God is deceiving him. And the idea that God is supremely perfect and shouldn't be a deceiver doesn't tally with what a lot of things God has done, according to all kinds of beliefs about God, where God might deceive us perfectly for some great reason you know sometimes we are tricked to see if we do the right thing or you know this world might be an illusion like lots of religions say god god puts us in um you know i i had a fake phishing email today that was sent by my school to test us to see if we're aware of spotting phishing emails and there's a good reason for deceiving us like that to test the security of the school email system so sometimes you can have a benevolent good reason to deceive and descartes doesn't really Worry about that, and and that whole God can't be a deceiver is is what a lot of the end of his his thing uh, is, is, is riding on, and I think to me that comes to the whole problem, which I think Sally said much earlier on in the podcast. Anyone who's trying to be a rationalist or an atheist and make some case that this doesn't come from experience, this idea, really is overestimating how much they can trace back their experiences and how much they know about the ideas and the contents of their mind because we don't know the counterfactual of what we would think about god in a world without the religious concepts of god that we're socialized into that we experience that we we learn about we don't know how much just the simple fact of being a newborn baby in a world of fully functioning therefore more powerful more bigger than us adults is the first experience that we have which is placing an idea of there being something more perfect than we are in our heads we just can't verify anything as being not from our experience, being there all along, and it's a really, really hard thing to ever say. And that just came from nowhere but my mind, because we don't know where the things in our mind come from quite a lot of the time. And I think one of the problems with this idea again of saying it's either or with empiricism and innatism is or or rationalism, is it relies on really being able to trace either everything back to an empirical root, which we can't do because we can't remember everything or saying that was definitely not from an empirical origin when we can't prove that either. So it feels like we've raised lots of issues and philosophers have over centuries raised all these issues. But unless you've got a really sure metaphysics like Plato that says, no, there's a soul. And in the world of forms, it knows this stuff and that's imprinted on it. And that's how all this came to be. And that's why we, we know that, which is really hard to maintain. You are left with just saying, There seems to be some things that we can trace the empirical origins of, and there seem to be some things that we seem to have innately inside us, and we can pick about some of those ideas in our head and make some deductions, but I can't commit to saying that anything was innate, that anything was purely empirical, and they just seem to be completely entangled.
1: Yeah, I think I would probably just give... Give Hume a last word on this, because I think students are expected to apply Hume's Fork to the arguments for God and the arguments of the external world and sometimes find that a bit tricky. But it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. If you think about Hume's Fork, take this proposition, God exists or the external world exists. Is it true by definition? Well, as long as we reject the ontological argument, no. <laughs> is it something I can know through the senses? Well, No. Even the external world wasn't for Descartes, so it falls under neither camp. And for Hume, then for it's not knowledge; it can't be. Plus, you have this um, assumption of the causal adequacy principle. And for Hume, whatever you say about cause is a matter of fact. It's come from experience, and it can always be otherwise. Whatever causal relations you've experienced in the past need not hold tomorrow. So both, you know, both these arguments for God and the arguments for the external world make these assumptions about the causal principle. So does the cosmological. Hume's thought pops up, (laughs) pops up there as well. And so for Hume, you know, I mean, he would just definitely say that, no, he, he hasn't proven any synthetic a priori knowledge. And that's probably the most compelling, I think, as much as I love the Kigita, it's probably the most compelling
2: yeah. it's probably also worth remembering that when he does prove the external world at the end he has to experience it to know that it's there so even again if he wins he loses because there it is i can trust the external world i can get knowledge empirically that's the whole bug. if he's if he, if, he, if it works then he's allowed to get empirical knowledge which is what he can then say he was
0: getting all along great um and here's one last word from me so, the person who comes along later on and solves it all is Kant, of course. But Kant's epistemology of metaphysics is not, thankfully, on the AQA specs. I think he's mad. But you can come to university and, and, and learn about Kant if you want to. Um, listen, we should stop things there. Thanks so much, uh, Sally, for coming on again.
1: Thank you so much for having me on again.
0: And Dan, thanks for coming on to you as well. Thanks for having me as well. Uh, And thanks to you for listening. Hope you found that uh, useful and illuminating episode. Hope you check out some of our other episodes as well on Philosophy Get Schooled and talk to you soon.